0: You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers.
1: Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast with us, Cain and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. Very exciting show today for you. We have got Chris Cox joining us very shortly to discuss... Everything from his recent run with The Illusionists on the West End, their New York Broadway show coming up before the end of the year, his role on the Harry Potter show that is, you know, the hottest ticket in town, and much, much more. Uh, Really good to be able to sit down with Chris, meet him properly and discuss. Kane, guess who's really lovely? Is it Chris Cox? It is Chris Cox! Yeah, because unfortunately I couldn't come with you to meet Chris Cox. Never met him before. Would have liked to have met him. I went to watch Evita. Did you? you? bothered. Yeah, that's where I was going. With yeah. uh, Madonna? No, at the Regent's Park Theatre. Wow. Have you ever been? No. It's incredible. Is that the one outdoors? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you get the chance, go. Um, One of my friends was in it, Alex. You no, know Alex? Yeah. Shazza. Swedish? From, uh, yeah, he's Swedish. Yeah. You, you know Shazza from... Uh, the D-Day Darlings? Yeah. Ah. Her boyfriend. He was in it. Spoiler alert, he can dance. Can he? Oh my, Daisy can dance. All I know is he makes good coffee. He makes good coffee. He's quite a tall guy, isn't he? He can sing. Already knew he could sing. Great production. It's quite interesting that the stage is raked, and then the audience are raked as well. Yeah, which I quite liked. It's closed now, so you won't be able to go. But um, I could have told you that. Is that what you were googling? Yes. Why? Well, you know we could talk about things. Yeah. Don't have to get Google out all just the time checking for you, in case you didn't know. I knew. Guess out of so. It's outdoors, of course. In the whole run, guess how many performances got cancelled because of the rain. When did it open? Before Edinburgh. Or maybe during Edinburgh. I think it did two months. I'm going in high here. Let's say, let's say it did two months. I'm going in high because there was a lot of rain in Edinburgh. And I know this was in London. Mm. Regent's Park. Mm. Twelve. One. Yeah. It's good, isn't it? it's very good, yeah. So did they do it in a light drizzle?
0: They do it in a light
1: drizzle. If you leave because of the rain, you don't get your money back. Right. But if they cancel the show because of the rain, you get your money back. You did get your money back. Uh Yeah. But it it was nice. Good show. The guy that plays Shea Guevara. Incredible. I don't know what his name is, but if he's listening, which I'm sure he is, good work. He was my favourite in the show. Is there a Madonna character? Yeah. Yeah, there is. Yeah. A Madge. Yeah, good. It's well, the, it's the same, same. It's it's Tim Rice and um, yeah, what's he called? Anthony Hopkins. Andrew Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> Ad- Ad- Anthony Hopkins. Yes. Yeah. Hello, Gladys. Hello, Avita. That's what I've been doing. Back to Chris Cox. Well, Disappointed Chris- that I couldn't come see him. Went to see the Illusionist twice myself. Leaving the show, leaving the theater. It's always interesting from a magician's point of view to listen to people as you're coming out of the theater. And he was the one person that I heard people talking about the most. Right. And one of our mutual friends, who's a lay woman, she went to watch the show without either of us. Yeah. And Chris Cox was her favourite person. Right. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why it's great that he's on the show, and it's exciting. And he's a lovely guy, a bag of energy, and he shares a lot in this interview. He really does. It's not, he doesn't just go... I was in the West End and it was great. He tells good bits, bad bits. If anyone, and I would say almost every magician listening to this, is probably thinking, I'd like a go at that. I'd, have a, I'd like what, to- a go on Chris Cox. No, <laughs> a, no a go on the, the illusionist. Oh, right. I'd like to be the illusionist. Chris really does kind of give you a good idea. Well, we all want what to what be like. the illusionists, don't we? But do we all want to do the work that's involved in getting into the illusionists? Well, there we go. That is the question. Uh, former podcast guest Dom Chambers, yeah. we should mention, is in the illusionist. Has now been announcing the illusionist in the uh, in the New York show. So him and Chris Cox will become best friends. And yeah, he was on the show just before he went on America. He's Express a nice talent. guy, isn't he? He's a lovely guy. Yeah. And Paul's in it. Nice guy. Paul's about it. yeah. So it turns out to get into the illusionist, you've got to be a nice. Guy. Talking of nice guys, <laughs> two nice guys that I know, Cain and Abel. Yeah are doing their show. It's us, of course. Don't, yeah. don't be like, oh, have they, got, have they got guest hosts. We're doing our show. Split egg. In London. In, in Camden. Uh, in the Etcetera Theatre. A Dirtier grotto, West End. And that is on at the Etcetera Theatre in Camden on the 16th of November, Saturday night, nine o'clock. Normally when we do shows, Abel, I'm not bothered about people coming. Yes. This one. Please come. Come to the show. This is the best show we've ever created, isn't it? Do you agree with that? I think it is. It's the strongest magic. Yeah. It's the most original magic. It's the strongest jokes. Most original jokes. It's the piece of work I'm most proud of. Are you most proud of it? I'm pretty proud of it. Narrative. Got one of them. It's got a narrative. It's just had its second Edinburgh run, and it's so it feels so good, doesn't it? Just yeah. doing it at Edinburgh, it just felt so good. And now we're going to do it in an actual theatre... With raked seating, which is ideal, because it is kind of a close-up magic show. Yeah. Parlour. With some lights. Yeah. And some sound. Well, I hope so. We're paying them enough for the lights and the sound. We're paying a very small amount of money. We're paying a reasonable amount of money. Just to say to anyone thinking of a venue, come and watch our show if you think you want a venue, to suss out the etc. Because it's a very reasonable... It's incredibly reasonable. ...venue hire. For central London... And there's a pub downstairs. And if you've never actually been to the Etcetera Theatre and you do do shows, particularly sort of close-up magic shows, do come along. Because um, we first went to watch John Lanahan there, didn't we? We did. And I can remember sitting in the room thinking, I want to perform here. This is a good little venue. And John said, get off the stage, i do <laughs> yeah, <a> show now. <laughs> <laughs> not, not now. Yeah, it's nice to know you're a fan. Yeah. But OK, you like Red Dwarf, sir, that's yeah. fine. But maybe we'll have a Guinness afterwards. Is that what he drinks? He had a Guinness, yeah. He drinks Guinness. Yeah. Well, yeah, so, November the 16th, come and see us at the Etcetera. Tickets are on sale, not quite yet. This time next week, by the time there's another podcast, they'll definitely be on sale. But of course, we will mention all of this on social media. Another reason to follow us. Do us a favour. Like, share, rate and review this podcast. We know, hopefully a lot of people would have been to The Illusionists. They'll find Chris Cox as a... A podcast they can listen to, so we might have some new ears here. We might have some. New well, we e- should stop rambling then and get down some... to the the nitty gritty. But what we need to say to our new ears is give us a little review on the on the iTunes. Go back and listen podcast. to some of the previous episodes. Yeah, if you like the Illusionist, Paul Debeck. Yeah, you can be. listen to him. We don't need to advertise him any more than. He's already being advertised. Dom Chambers, of course, just joined the show. He's there as well. Anyway, yes, we've got a nice, big, juicy back catalogue. Do us a favour, say something nice on social media about us. But we know why you're here. You want some cocks. You want some cocks in your life. And we've got it for you. Chris Cox, right now, on Talking Tricks. You better ask my questions. Pardon? You better ask my questions. Oh, goodness, your questions. Right, I'm going to be honest. Have you rolling. Right, I'm going to be honest here, I had time to ask one of your questions. Play the episode. Okay.
0: The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks.
1: Joining us now on Talking
0: Tricks is Chris Cox. It's me, hi. We are in a... Park in yes. central London. It's very rare for me not to be in a members club, but um, uh, <laughs> here I am instead. <laughs> Way to ingratiate myself from, from the moment. Snobby. Snobbiness, great, yeah, straight away. Good. What is this dingy pub? What that is this you dingy hellhole? To? Why didn't I have to show a membership card to get in? <laughs> But we are in
1: a lovely room. We are. What we've been given for free. Thanks very much. Which says a lot about... To our friends at the Nell. At the Nell. Thanks for having us Other pubs are available. And Chris, you've just completed a West End run.
0: Yes. With The Illusionist. I have. Um, How was that? It was really exhausting. It was... um, It was really exhausting. It was amazing. So, here's the... Here's the rub. Or here's the thing. Or whatever American phrase you want to use. I sort of have to preface this answer with the fact that I cannot believe how lucky I am. So this was my third West End run. And like, I love magic, obviously, but my main thing that I love is theater. And as a kid, to think that I would get to play on the West End was always a dream. Um, and then I realized I couldn't sing dance or act. I was like, well, that's never gonna happen. And luckily, magic. It is incredible. I don't for a second not think how lucky I am, how what an amazing opportunity, how I'll look back on it as an incredible thing. like, But in the storm of it, it is really hard work. And again, it's not hard work because we're not doing proper work, but we're doing 12 shows a week, which is a lot. So like, that's three a day on Saturdays. That's two every day really in the week, um, other than our day off and the day we have one show. Uh, and then it is as close as you can get to having an office job, but weirder because it's 100% Groundhog Day. So you have the same two minute conversation with the same person at the same time every day and all of that. So it was um, it was a lot of fun but very exhausting and hard work and I was a bit burned out towards, certainly towards the end of it because I'd kind of been doing The Illusionist for a year pretty much with the odd break here and there. Um, and I had to, I went into it doing my usual illusionist set, which is two bits, and then we ended up, show was running long, so we got rid of my first bit. So then I had to spend some of that month reworking, because I didn't realise quite how my two bits work as companion pieces, so then I had to, was reworking a bit. So all those things where you kind of settling into the routine, that took a longer time to come, so therefore it was hard to work. It was fine, thanks for asking. There you go, that's the answer. Um,
1: some days free,
0: free show days. Yeah.
1: Uh, did you ever think, because it's quite a high-energy act, yes, your act. Did Yeah, you ever think maybe Chris Cox, the mind reader, might be slightly more uh, relaxed yeah, in this show? that's
0: very funny. I was having a conversation with... I was doing The Illusionist in Reno before here, and Dave Williamson was with us, and we were talking about... like it's like you should just get an arm we're talking about three Day days like why don't you get an armchair as your thing and then you can sit on it but I'm very my whole thing's always been very high energy and fun which is odd for mind reading so inherently it's a good place for me to start it's funny Holly our resident director I remember saying to her about halfway into the run it's like I'm aware that I'm not moving around as much it's just that I'm, I'm tired and I'm conserving my energy and she's like no you're still moving around a lot and it's better because you're always moving around way too much so actually, I kind of by by being a bit exhausted by it, I found probably a less exhausting version to watch, and therefore probably a slightly less punchable version of me on stage. I always think that when I'm very energetic and have a lot of energy, it's probably quite annoying. So to it's funny like the things you learn. Like I wouldn't have learned how I I would have found it hard to make myself slower on purpose because it was all about high energy. But because of the hamster wheel almost of it, you kind of have to cons- find ways to conserve your energy. So you find ways to slow down. You're like, okay, well, I can stand still and do- I'll do a little running bit here and stuff. And actually by doing that, I found other ways to present bits of that material, which only come out of those weird experiments that you're kind of forced into rather than you would ever do yourself.
1: With your um, on stage persona being so excitable yes. and lively, yeah. do you think that boosts, the reaction from the audience when you end up, in your own words, not being shit. I think that's uh, the, yes. when you say, you thought I was going to yeah. be shit, didn't it's,
0: you? <laughs> yeah, it's my favourite joke in the show, and it's a family friendly version now, where I say, you thought I was going to be crap or rubbish, depending on whether I'm in America or England. And it always gets the best laugh, because it's... I genuinely think everyone lets at it and goes, well, this guy is going to be crap. And yeah, I think, I think playing underdog as a mind reader, I don't think anyone really does and no one else should do it because it's terrible, but I find it brilliant for me. It's very good. And coming at it from being a... I think it's coming at it being aware of who I am. And I kind of spent a lot of time, particularly in my like early Edinburghs, trying to discover who I was, and that was kind of always the point of Edinburgh for me. And then when I realised, oh, kind of like uh, silly and funny and not taking it too seriously is more natural because it's more akin to who I am. And then... When I started doing impossible in the West End, it was sort of had happened a bit before then, but it was the point where I really made the decision that I don't care whether people can think whether people think I can really do it or not. It doesn't bother me. You think it's tricks or not. I don't want them to think I can really read their minds and then it's suggestion or any of that. I just want them to have fun and therefore it kinda of freed me up to find the most entertaining ways to read minds as possible and how to make what is basically tricks, which are all process, how to make that process as entertaining as the conclusion. And so I suppose by doing that, it therefore makes the reveals all the more impressive. But also, there's a weird dichotomy in that, which always frustrates me in that by being a bit sh- shitter, the reveal should be on the whole more impressive. But there are also moments where, and by not caring whether they think I can do it for real, it should just be, hopefully, people should just, my idea and my aim is that they will go along with me because they kind of get that my tongue's my cheek, and it's sort of a trick, but not really a trick, so it could be real, but it's probably not, but they go with it. But actually, it's kind of the opposite side of it being more impressive, is that people go, try to bust me more. Uh, You've probably done that through this, and it's like, no one does that with any of the other illusionists really in the show. Yeah. But with me, there's an element, and and that's only really happened in England, never in America, and I find it a, a thing that I'm currently trying to deal with, because my whole point is to be underdog. And it's almost like I want the audience to be like, you know you're you 're actually quite good, well done. When I get when I use people, i shouldn 't really get heckled to get people dicking me around because it's in theory, the audience will be like, "Why are you being di- he 's trying his best he 's a nice guy so it 's strange that sometimes in within that you then get people trying to show you up a bit more, and that 's only happened in the London run, and I still can 't quite work out why, and it happened a handful of times. And it hadn't really happened before for a long time. And I don't really have an answer for that. And that wasn't your question either. But that's where my train of thought got. gone. So that's a, near, like, a thing that I'm trying to work on for the next leg of shows. But also, they're in America, so it'll be a different audience again.
1: it'll be a yeah. my god, get yeah. out of my mind. Yeah, it's <laughs> that, like,
0: that real difference of, I finished shows in America on the Friday. I started in London on the Monday. And that was a tough change of reaction.
1: Is, is lying ever... Was lying ever an issue when you're kind of... Because without giving too much yeah. away about your act, you know, there's the point when you have the person randomly selected yeah. right at the back normally yeah. of the theatre and it's like, you know, do you live here? Did you used to yes. live here? All these kind of things, and it gets so extreme. Yeah. Is there be an issue when people are like, no, that's not where
0: I'm from? No, actually, that's never been an issue. And that's kind of one of those things where I've thought about that a lot, actually, as to what happens if someone is a dick and there's obviously and there there is no other better phrasing for it and there's obviously I've got like other things that will happen if that happens and I actually they just being a dick so I need to move on um but I've always so there's like I've built things into that routine where if they say no I can prove that you're lying because it's like they're filling in cards and putting them in a box I've got we can all see your envelope here in front of me with your card in it if you want to say no, then that's fine, and we can open it up and we can all chat. But also, I think it's hopefully no one wants to do that because mm. they'll feel like it's kicking a puppy, um, <laughs> uh, which is a great act by the way, as a guy does it in Edinburgh on the streets. Doesn't doesn't make much money, but really good act. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, uh, I think that yeah, I think, and but also it's like the power you have when they're standing up. In a big, beautiful theatre and they're projected on a screen and they're holding a mic and you're in charge. It's very rare that they will be anything more than sort of trying to do it for a laugh. And then you quickly can be like, <laughs> shut up and do as you're told. But in the older days, like in my Edinburgh days, are definitely times I'd have people just try and fuck me over. Yeah, And then like, I think partly my, the version of my character that's become has come out of trying to create a world where people don't want to fuck you over. Because it's just not fun. Because you, eventually, you as the performer, you should win any time anyone's going to try and do that. Yeah. But you kind of feel like... I feel like it's just not fun for anyone if that person decides to be a dick. Because it sucks all the energy out the room and makes everyone uncomfortable. And it's like, if I can just avoid that happening... Any magician
1: that's ever done any trick will have someone that's lied about their card, yes. haven't they? And I yeah. think from there, you just make sure you've got those out. Yeah. And ways you can show that, you know, and it's also you know, worki-
0: Yeah, it's also working out where whether, like, that person, what is their... Trying to, in the moment, work out what is their intention behind them being behaving like this. So, it's a point in control, which is sort of my version of a Q&A that I do, where a guy, I, I revealed some stuff about him, and he's like, I, I didn't even... He, he was like... He, it's a thing I try and get them to say. Sometimes I have to ask them, but he actually said it that day. He's like, I didn't even write that down. How could you... How could you know that? I was like, and I am like, is there any way I could know that? He was like, no, well, no. I mean, maybe social media? And I went, do you have a... Did you put that on... Is that on your social media? He went, no, I haven't even got a Facebook account. <laughs> I'm like, oh, great, okay. So he's just like, <laughs> yeah. he's not trying to be a dick. He's just trying to... Work it out. Un- moment, like, un- yeah. like unscramble his brain at that point. Where well, there's often people who will be like... Who will try and say something similar in a know-it-all way. And then you just you have to be like, well you're then trying to backtrack where you shouldn't be having a backtrack because it's like, particularly in that instance, it's like, oh, it's on social media. Like, have we met before? No. Do I have your full name? No. Is there any way I can know who you are or access any of those details? No. Well, there you go. But then it's always, um, yeah, I suppose it all comes down to, some people are going to have a personality where they're going to want to challenge you and anything you do, you can't fight against that. But you can try and be up at least come to the battle armed.
1: There is one thing I thought when watching your act yeah. in The Illusionist, and uh, I'm going to have to ask you the question. Sure. We're, I love the bit with the water.
0: Yeah, thanks. It's so creepy. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's so weird. It's so gross. I love it. Yeah. Um, and I was sat in there, and I think it was the second time I came and watched the show, uh-huh. I just thought, I wonder how many times he's got ill.
0: Well, here's a good... Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> so... It's a bit, I do, and this is like, there's a couple of bits. The end of control as well came out of a similar thought process where they're both the same things. Where I sort of one day went, Oh, that would be funny, that would be good, I'll try that. And then I do it, and it gets a great response. I'm like, Oh, great. And then I realise, Oh, that's now in the show. Forever, I've got someone spitting into a bottle and I'm drinking that bottle of water. And I haven't been sick for, I think it's boosted my immune system. I used to be very sickly all the time and I haven't been sick for a while, but here's a couple of interesting tidbits about it. The one thing I check is whether they have uh, ulcers or anything on their mouths. If they do, I don't use them for that bit. Yeah. Secondly, at that point in that act, I've been shouting at the audience, which is kind of what I do, uh, for about 11 minutes. And I, there's nothing I want more than a drink. And the fact that it's got spit in it outweighs, does not outweigh the fact that I just really would love a drink at this point. So, and I kind of don't think, I literally don't think about it. Uh, and I recently had to get uh, a life insurance policy. where Because of that bit, I had to have like all these extra, I had to have like an HIV test and like two other blood testingies. Because of that bit in the show, um, turns out I'm fine. Uh, thank God. Um, but it is always a uh, there's always a concern on it. But it's a funny bit, right? It's a funny Instead bit. like a laughs outweigh the. It's like any yeah. bit which I can sort of see like like Jonathan Goodwin does a bit where he gets slapped every night. Yeah. And he does stuff which is painful for him. And I'm, I'm like, I wouldn't. I can do that, but I can see why you can do it because like you have the same mentality as me, going it's a good bit. So I'll put up with it for a good bit. But it's funny, he, Goodwin, who does properly dangerous stuff, once said to me that of all the dangerous things he's ever done, the one thing he would never do is three shows a day, drink someone's bottle of spit. Um, But funny bit. Uh, But it's funny, it's interesting, because I started, like probably most magicians, you kind of, at some point, do your own show, which is you. And that's what I did for all these Edinburgh's. And now I kind of mainly do The Illusionists, uh, where I do normally two spots, and always thought of them as very standalone. And what I realised in this run, once we only kept controlling, is by my dressing room bit, which I think is probably my most unique and original... Like, it's a home... And you've not seen anything like it in mentalism. In that you can't, you kind of have, because at some point you're reading a mind. Mm. But the the whole routine is visual, colourful, funny, really strong. He says about his own material. <laughs> but it what I realised is that it really sets up everything about who I am within the first 10 seconds and then throughout that routine. So by the time I would get to control, I don't have to do any exposition. I can literally go straight into, here's powerful mind reading. What I've realized by losing that routine is that I have to be a bit worse in control. And control's best reaction without that routine is maybe 90% of what it is without, with that routine. It's an interesting thing as a performer, to think, okay, now what I'm trying to do is distill what are those things that I've lost and how do I put them in very quickly at the top of a different routine to create buy-in. And that's kind of what I realise you need to do in a show particularly like The Illusionist, where like, here's an act, here's an act, here's an act. Mm-hmm. Within a couple of seconds of coming on stage, can they work out who you are? And then how quickly can you get them to buy into what it is you're about to do and willingly suspend their disbelief? I think that's like vital whether you're doing close-up or whether you're doing an Edinburgh show or something it's like who are you can they work it out and how quickly can you get them to buy into who you are and what you stand for and what you're about to do because as soon as you got them there you can't really go wrong Mm.
1: how far through the run did you switch to doing just the one four days in four days in. yeah and did you find when you first went to that one piece were you almost a bit anxious to kind of do all the this yeah. is who I am bit and then be able to get to the bit of of just nailing that really strong mental. Yeah, it yeah.
0: was really difficult. It was really, really difficult. I didn't realise how tough it would be. I had a really crappy couple of weeks of really feeling. It was interesting because I felt it was the first time ever about a month or two before London that I felt comfortable in the show. I was like, oh, I feel like I've got a place in the show and they like what I do and I'm always having imposter syndrome, like I'm going to be found out. Um, and then I come to London like, By the way, we're cutting a bit of your routine. Uh, the routine that they just licensed and that I talked to someone else and were putting in the other show. So all the insecurities and fears boiled up. So I was trying to deal with all of that and then also try to make control as good as it could be without that routine. So at first I was trying to throw everything at it and then was trying to pull back and cut away. It's interesting because at the minute I'm trying to cut dressing room down from 12 minutes to eight minutes for Broadway Hmm. and it's really tough, but I feel it's vital too because those pieces work better together. So if I cut the time out, then I can make it hopefully work. Um, But trying to at the top of, yeah, you're basically trying to, uh, what you do is you, you try and condense all the good stuff and then you realize what you need and what you don't need. And then you kind of, Like when I first started trying to mix it, I was like, oh my God, I've been on stage for like six minutes. I haven't even done a trick yet. And then that probably only came like three or four weeks into the run that I started to feel like, oh, it's found its groove now. And it found a version of its groove quite early, but it was always a battle. And now I go, all right, well, I've got this version. But it all comes down to those first couple of minutes of trying to, what I realised is I need to do is like, get them to realise who I am, get them to realise I'm funny, get them to realise that I'm going to read their minds, but I'm not really going to read their minds. Get them to realise that what my process of doing that is get them to buy into it, not necessarily believe it, and then prove that I can actually do it. And then when I've done that, I can then do the trick. Where the difference has always been that I can just normally come out and be like straight into a trick. Yeah,
1: I keep hoping that one day I'll come up with the perfect opening line that will just tell everyone exactly everything they need to know about me and my brother and exactly everything that we're about (laughs) to do in like one quick line. Because so often we come out and you've got to do this. You know, whether it's a minute or a few minutes, yes. so that everyone knows who you are and they're prepared for what they're about to see. Especially the kind of venues we work a lot of the time, we're just, uh, you know,
0: something that people didn't know was going to yes. happen after dinner. Yeah. Um, c- but also within the illusions, there's an element of that. Yeah. You know, I'll do those corporate things where I don't know who you are. But you can illusions, like every time you you're like, they never come to see you, they're coming to see the show. So you'll kind of be like, oh, who's this guy? What's he do? I think he's, was this the guy from the poster? I don't know, I didn't really, no one cares about the poster other than the people on the poster. It's, a comedi- it's comedians are the ones that can fix that and find those lines. I remember Larry David's line is my favorite opening line. Um, so Larry from Kirby Enthusiasm yeah. comes out and goes, let me tell you something about good looking people. We are not well liked as a group. <laughs> and like instantly, you know him, his character, everything. And I have sort of, it's funny, I get a lot of ribbing um, from, good friends about my opening line. And I'm like, are you still doing that? Are you still doing, you look like Sue Perkins? And I've been doing that for a long time, that line. Thank God, like no one is more happy than me and her agent that her career <laughs> continues to go from strength to strength. And so I dropped it in London. I was like, all right, I'm not doing it. Goodwin in particular was like, it would always take piss at me constantly doing that line. A couple of shows in, he's like, you should put that line back in. And realised that it does work and that it's, it's there for a... That line works and does a lot of the shorthand for me, but then I still have to explain everything, and,
1: and you have the big picture. on the Yes, point. yeah,
0: big picture to like make it land for the people who don't know who she looks like. Um, it's sort of I think I can't I don't can't think of any other mind readers that come out and the first thing is to self deprecate. Yeah, and I think that's important for me.
1: Is it one of the toughest, toughest things? Then I suppose being part of this huge mega touring show, The Illusionist, is only having a certain amount of time and always changing I don't know if is it like that often with the illusionist that acts are changed with the amount of time that you get or is that kind of purely a London thing no it
0: is um on the like the tech the first few days of shows we will have a plan of what the show should be and then when we start running the show it's like oh well the show's 15 minutes too long and if it's 15 minutes too long here's an easy way to save 12 minutes Get rid of a mind reading routine. Yeah. Um, so, this is the first time I've had a bit cut. There's other acts in other shows I've had material cut. And you kind of. It's. It's soul destroying. It's so painful. But you have to just sort of suck it up because you are there to serve the show. It's not my show. I'm there to be as good as I can to make the show as good as it can be and everyone else in that show as good as it can be and that is my job so you just get on with it really but yeah there's always changes and, and movements of orders and you never feel truly settled I suppose because everything is someone else's decision so I kind of realised halfway through the first year I did Impossible in the West End which was like the first big ensemble show I did is that I realized that all I can focus on is my stuff and that being as good as it can be and the rest is gonna happen no matter what so I kind of try and keep that mentality where yeah you can only focus on you so try and focus on you and put the energy that you might expunge on something else on back on yourself I think we've naturally focused on some of the uh, downsides. Yeah, <laughs> to yeah these, it's it. funny. It does feel like I've been very down <laughs> on it. Um, and I'm not. Like, that's, sort of, that's why I kind of felt like at the yeah. beginning it was important to say that I'm not yeah. um, down on it. But I think it's interesting because it's so nice when people... I seen a friend yesterday and he was like, how amazing. And you're living the dream. And he's like, yeah, I suppose from an outside perspective it is that. And actually it probably is. It definitely is that. That is a dream I had as a kid, was mm. to get to perform in the West End. But when you're in it, it's really difficult to, to keep that, to stop the, for stuff not to get you get you down. And suddenly, like if you'd have spoke to me in the end of the Australian run, I was on a mega high. I had such a good run in Australia. I was really happy with what I was doing. It was really comfortable. I was getting great reactions. I wasn't as tired as I was doing London. Like, it when it becomes exhausting is when it it just never ends um and shows blow into shows and you're sitting there going oh god okay get the energy get the energy here we go and the energy is always there but um i certainly wouldn't want anyone listening to this to think that i was ungrateful or that i'm down on it because i'm not but i think sometimes maybe you don't really see the realities behind everything and maybe I've shared too many of them. Or maybe I'm just in a bit of a down mood at the minute. But I think it's important to be honest at least Absolutely. about how you currently feel. But I love the show. I love doing it. I am so privileged to get to get applause from big audiences and be on posters on the tube and outside theaters. And like, I, I never for a second don't think that. And it is amazing. And it's an amazing show. And if I wasn't in the show, I'd be watching the show and trying to get in the show. And I never thought I'd be an act for that show. I never pestered them. I never got in contact with them. They, I was When they emailed me, uh, asking me, uh, like email, my first contact was I got an email asking for uh, doing an availability check. Um, I genuinely replied saying, did you mean to send this to me? <laughs> it's an incredible thing for magic, that show. And to me, just to think about where I've been with it and let alone where the other versions of a show have been and that there are audiences big audiences coming out to see it. I think it's great for everyone in magic that those shows are a success and bring audiences in because they show people that live. The amount of times you meet people at stage door and they'll be like, oh, um, we love magic, but we've never seen it live before. And I'll always be like, great, there's loads of live magic you can go and see. Look at Magic Week. Don't look at Magic Week because you'll realize how magic, you'll end up at a lecture by accident. Um, but Do look at Magic Week, but that thing, and go like, here's places you can go see shows. You can go to Edinburgh, there's shows going on in London. There's always magic shows happening and hopefully now more people will see them because of like we had about 100,000 people I think came to see us in London over the over the 8 weeks which is amazing and like even if a small percentage of them look at their local theater or see there's a magic show on them hopefully they're going to go again and I think that's good for all of us absolutely what
1: where what did it come off then was it off the back of um impossible yes yeah. it
0: was yeah yeah so I did the first year of impossible which so I'd done five solo Edinburgh shows before I did impossible and i'd done had I done Killer? yeah I'd filmed I'd done killer magic, and then impossible came around, which was an old coward over the summer, so that yeah and off the back of that um i I from what I gathered I think someone from the illusions must have seen it, and we're like, oh, we need a mind reader for this, and I got an email, but it's funny because I yeah I never thought of myself as the act for them, but actually now I do it and how I, and and I altered my act to make it fit more, yeah. but I kind of go, oh yeah actually. It's interesting, we were looking, as I have someone who does my act in America, process of trying to find someone to do that was incredibly difficult. And I sort of realized, there are a few things I learned from it. One, which is how similar nearly every mentalist is. Mm. They're very interchangeable. When, I'm, when you're watching a lot of it in a short space of time, and I kind of go, all right, I realized all the stuff mm. I've worked on to be different has paid off. And also getting to, there's a weird thing, I got to watch my material. I got to watch my act. And it's weird, because when you do a bit, you're like, right, I'm getting, I always feel like I'm getting away with this rather than it being any good. And when you sit in with an audience, and you watch it like, oh, it is good. And all those choices I've made, not really have gut instinct, or just by doing it enough, you suddenly realize, oh, they are the right choices. And it's a very different thing to like watching a video back of yourself. But I hate watching videos myself. Yeah, it is the advice I always give people. You can only get better watching back yourself and cringing. And fixing
1: in that answer you've unearthed three things yeah it's I just,
0: just like a stream of consciousness i'm so sorry no that's good i want to talk about new
1: york yes. with uh the illusionist very quickly and then we can park that and okay. move further but just so that i don't forget yeah i want to talk about edinburgh we talk about it a lot on this podcast yes. but i want to know what you kind of got from your uh-huh. many years there but firstly how have you found the whole process of getting someone to, to become Chris Cox 2? Um, or what led to your decisions to wanting to do that? And, and how have you found all of that? It must be a bit surreal.
0: Yeah, it's really weird. Um, so they, I was asked whether I'd be interested in... So I was doing The Illusionist in Reno. And I was only ever doing three months of it and then coming to do London. And they were like, what's the opportunity? Is it feasible to get someone to do your act? And I was like, no. And then I thought about it. And it's like, well, we can at least try. And I was sort of open to the challenge of seeing whether it's possible because I didn't really know whether it would be or not. So, so it came from that. And then we looked at actors. We looked at comedians. We looked at magicians. We looked at mind readers. We looked, looked at a lot of people. And then I found some... And what I was really looking for is a personality, which isn't... So the whole point for me was to find someone who could do their version of me I didn't want them to be me, but I wanted them to find their version of the things that make me and the acts work. Can they do their version of high energy and all that stuff? And we found some people and then we got people to do tapes and then we uh, settled on a great... So weirdly, the guy we ended up using was a guy called Wes Matheson, who had been the props guy for the illusionist for the US tour. Oh. So he'd worked on my acts and knew yeah. them, uh, but had then left the illusionist to go and do... He was always a magician. And he left the Illusionists to go and do his own thing at the Chicago Magic Lounge, and to, in the hope of one day being able to be in the Illusionists. and he realised if he stayed doing props, maybe he would only ever seem as a props guy. And I recognised a lot of that because I was at Radio One as a producer for years, and then ended up leaving it because I was like, if I'm stay here and keep using this, I will never be able to make that change because I haven't given my made made that leap myself. Mm. So I recognise I sort of admire anyone that takes a massive risk and going all right I'm gonna try and not do that and do this now and he did a great demo and we we're like great let's get him in um and he worked so hard and he's doing a really good job I watch videos all the time of it to check he's not screwing it up and I felt like we had basically two solid weeks where I was doing the show in the evening and in the day we were working on it and a lot of the like a lot of that was like sort of theatre, actory, directory things and trying to help him find a character as well as how to actually do the tricks and what happens when it goes wrong and all this stuff. Uh, and when I left, I felt like he, we had taught him to not drown. And now I'm watching it and I'm seeing him swim, which is really lovely. And that's kind of, it was at a good state when I left, good enough to be in the show and to be very solid. And now all those moments he's found and extra bits are amazing. But it was really hard work. Like it, it was Like it killed a bit of my soul giving it away. And teaching it and analyzing why I do why why do I say that line? Should you say that line? Is that line even funny? I get a laugh, but is it like and then to actually do the show that evening when you've been dissecting? Cause you don't dissect an act once you've built it, and all the act's been built for after its initial concepts and scripting and getting it on stage, after all that work, then the real work comes in just doing it and you all these changes and it naturally progresses to what it becomes but you never really think about why it's got there. You've just found that those things work. So then to cut it away and dissect it and try and rebuild it was really difficult. But I think the acts are stronger when I do them now as well because of that. And it was really nice. It's like, it gave me a lot of pride, I think, to see him do it and to go, oh, that stuff I've been dicking around with is good and audiences do like it. And I always feel like a bit of a cheat as a magician or a mind reader because I've always loved magic i have never been in magic clubs and never went to uh, conventions and societies but went and did my first Edinburgh show with my student loan and it was a magic show it was a mind reading show and I always loved it so therefore I've always thought like I'm the worst thing in a show and actually when I watch it I go oh, actually these routines are really good um, and it's you don't, I don't think you get to see that. And some people probably think that already about their stuff, but I never thought that. So it was nice to see it and actually go, Oh, this is a solid piece and has, of material. As he added
1: kind of his own lines or yeah. actions. Yeah, yeah he doesn't look
0: like Sue Perkins, so we got rid of that joke. <laughs> um, but we found like <laughs> we tr- we tried him originally with just the script as is, and then we're like, What lines don't feel do you not feel right saying? So instantly they went. And then there are points where we will be like, Alright, I do a thing here and it gets a laugh. Why And do we need the laugh there? And does it, and if we feel we do need a laugh there, what's your version of that laugh? So he has his own lines, he has his own mannerisms. He is interesting. We tried it, so the first thing I do is I run on stage and I jump. That is kind of one of my things, of being like, oh, this guy's different to everyone else who we've just seen. At the beginning was was that I don't really feel comfortable doing a jump, so we didn't have it in. And then towards the end of rehearsals, the beginning just wasn't quite we rewrote the script for the opening and found these new bits for him and but it just was not quite working. And then one day I was like, Just come on and jump for me. Just try it. And he did it and he said as he we he was wearing we were trying to costume on him. Uh, and he he just went he was like, Oh, I think I split my trousers or my pants, he said. And it was instantly funny, I'm like, Oh, this is and then that, so now he does do like a little jumpy thing and a thing but his version of it, but it helps create that same character and also we gave him we did for ages. We didn't give him glasses, and they were like, "Actually, let's give him a pair of glasses as well." And just those little things helped find his versions of me, and that's what it is. It's his versions of the things that I do, rather than him doing me completely. Although the act is like the beats are all there for the tricks. What's the purpose
1: of him? Is he kind of you when you're for when you're booked? Um, is he is he kind of
0: does yeah. the gigs you can't do or I don't really know. Uh, why is the purpose like? <laughs> For... I think there is a... It's sort of an unknown at the minute because it's still, like said, Valentin, but Valentin is Enzo in Reno. So right. Enzo has, like, two other Enzos doing his act. Uh, and I so Enzo's licensed him out, and now I've done it and I think I'm the first mind reader to do it. Uh, so I think it's a case for me, as someone who has a two-year-old and another baby on the way, it's the opportunity for me to have work without having work. So it's like... I'm doing a US tour next year I couldn't really take that tour without the ability to take a week off to go home to spend time with the family and for him to be able to come in and do the act it, not to cost the company really any money to do that so that's really useful and also the as the illusionist grows and grows there are more and more shows and there's less and less people and I think I'm lucky that they took trust and faith and like what I do enough to be like we could put that in another version of a show if you're doing one version. So, like, I was doing it in London, he was doing it in Reno. It free... In the same way with, like, Enzo stuff is the same. Like, it allows them a maybe a more cohesive way of working in that they go, all right, well, we know what this act is so we can light it and tech it and just someone else can come and do it. Very quickly then before we park yes. the Illusionist and move on, because there's so much there's more so much- I want to talk to you about. We've done the West End. Yeah. Broadway coming up. Yeah. West End and Broadway in the same year. It's like nuts, In within a 12 month period I'll have played Sydney Opera House, The West End and Broadway. I mean that's utterly, utterly crazy. Not even
1: Cher's done that. I know right, <laughs> no one's, I
0: don't think anyone's done it. Like, I genuinely don't think they have. And it's, it reminds me how fucking lucky I am to be part of the show that, get, that does that and how amazing that team are that have created that show which can do that. And I'm so looking forward to it. I am terrified because the last two weeks are 16 shows a week. And I thought 12 shows a week were tough. And as soon as, and my baby's born very close to us going out there. So they're going to come as soon as they can get a passport. So it'll be mixing family life with work life, which is going to be exhausting and fun at the same time. Um, But also things like going, Darren's doing Broadway and doing an amazing job. And I spent most of my career trying to be as different as possible from Darren. So that hopefully no one can ever compare us. But then to be like, okay, well now we're going to be on the same in the same world doing the same thing but I'm sort of comfortable in that knowing no one could see what I do if they were lazy they could go it's a bit like Darren Brown in that it's mind reading Mm -hmm. in the same way they can see Lady Gaga and go it's a bit like Celine Dion in that they're singing yeah and that's incredible that he's doing so well there and that I'm gonna get to be there at the same time and to like it's it's amazing the uh, we're playing the Neil Simon theatre and I realised first ever show I saw on Broadway was Hairspray at the Neil Simon Theatre so it's like really great to be that's where we're going and also there's a lot of shows I want to see while I'm there what's top of your list? Uh, Moulin Rouge actually really want to see it I've heard nothing but good things coming here I think next year but I'd like to see it there um I've already seen how I saw Hamilton the original Broadway cast I don't like to mention it but anyone who listens to this who knows me will know that's literally all I talk about there's a couple of other things there I kind of I'm trying to not look too much because I know I'm not going to have much time to see things, but definitely, like, if Dear Evan Hansen wasn't coming to the UK, I'd see that there. But yeah, Moulin Rouge is kind of the one we're like, oh, I need to get to see that.
1: And it might seem like a lifetime ago yeah. now, but uh, you mentioned Edinburgh a few times. What did you get from, was it five years in a row? Did, no,
0: said? so I did, my Edinburgh life was, I did my first show at Sea Venues. I did nine shows because that's all I could afford. And were you a student at this it was point? A st- it was my yeah. final year of uni, and I'd saved up money to go and do it. And it was a case of, I'd loved Edinburgh as a kid. I used to, I think from maybe I was 12 or 13, I used to, maybe a bit older. But I remember pestering my dad to take me up to Edinburgh one year, and we'd go every summer for a couple of days. And I would always wanted to do a show. So it was a case of, can I go and actually do a show? And will people see it? And it went well. So then the next year I went and did Gilda Balloon, and that went really well. It was probably my most successful year maybe in hindsight but it's funny because that first year I did Edinburgh was pre there was maybe three magicians on like Ali Cook hadn't done it Pete Furman hadn't done it Barry and Stuart hadn't do it so my second year I was at the Gilded Balloon was a year that all of their first years as well but that show I did went really well and off the back of that I got a promoter and I did a third year at the Pleasants and then that third show I wasn't very happy with and it was all right but it wasn't great um but I toured that show as well and then I felt like, all right, I'm not going to do Edinburgh again until I know what I want to do and that it needs to be different. So then I took a year off and then I did Edinburgh again. And then I toured that show again in the UK and then New Zealand. And then I took two years off and then did a show, which was my, probably the best thing I've done there. You think that about every last show you've done. But it was a net one-man narrative show. It was a play with tricks. It was a mind-reading show with a story. And it like the best reactions came from little moments of magic that linked into telling the story and it was actually the emotion of it rather than the magic and i loved doing that show Um, and i toured that twice i did like the other belly quite a lot with it i did new zealand with it and i've not been out to edinburgh since and i'd like to go back but i feel like i only ever want to go if i've got an idea where edinburgh is the place to do the idea and it's going to be different and i'm not just going to be doing the same type of thing
1: and were you, were you at Radio 1 then? Yeah. Did
0: you come straight out of uni
1: into Radio 1? Yeah, One? so Sorry.
0: again, I as a kid, I loved magic, I loved theatre, and I loved radio, and I just always did those things. I was very lucky, I think, as a child, to know they're the things I loved. So while I was... So I always used to, like, present little radio shows as a kid, and then... I went to university in Bristol and had done work, I got work experience at BBC Radio Bristol and then had started answering the phones on their like Sunday morning show and then that led to me being a broadcast assistant and then an assistant producer. So I spent a lot of my time at uni working at the radio. So I'd be doing like, I did assistant producer of an evening show, so I did that three or four nights a week. And about six months before finishing uni, uh, Radio One were coming. No, maybe it was a year, it would have been a year before. Yeah, it was Glastonbury, the Glastonbury of a year before I finished uni. Right. And Radio 1 were coming to do Glastonbury, and we're going to use our studios. And I sent them an email saying, can I come and help you? Because I loved Radio 1 and wanted to work there. And they went, no, no, thank you. And I turned up anyway, uh, and they needed my help, because they didn't know how our studios work properly. So off the back of that, they were like, why don't you come and do some work experience in London? We arranged that. I went and did it. The person who I was meant to be working like, alongside was off sick, and I ended up doing their job. And then they'd start giving me freelance work. So I, while at uni, would, this is one of the reasons why I didn't save up enough to do a full ride of Edinburgh, is I used to go, Radio One would give me freelance shifts, I'd go and do a day's work in London, and it would cost me more to get the train to and from London than I was being paid to do the work. But it meant that when I finished uni, I literally finished uni on the Friday and started at Radio One on the Monday, which was amazing. So the whole, I used to basically use all my holiday to do, go off, do Edinburgh. Right. I would, like if I was touring, I'd go in early, I'd work till four, I'd get the train to wherever I was gonna be on tour, do the show, come back, follow that system. And even when I was doing Impossible, so when I was filming Killer Magic, I was doing four days a week, a mix of four days a week in Glasgow, filming it three days a week at Radio One, or the other way around. And then when I did Impossible, first year in the West End, I was doing eight shows a week in the West End, and I was in Radio One five days a week.
1: That must have created a lot of problems.
0: Mainly lack of sleep. Yeah. Yeah, um, Yeah, it did, and it was off the back of that that I was like, I need to stop. Because I'm going to have to start turning down things that I really want to do. And Radio 1 were always great in yeah. letting me uh, take career breaks if I needed a little bit. So like when I did New Zealand tours, I took a career break and had like nine months off at one point where I just went and focused. And that's when I wrote the Fatal Distraction show, which became my final Edinburgh show to date. Yeah, and they were very good. and I was very lucky that they were supportive of it. But I was also always aware that like, I never liked, i never talked much on air. Other than I did a Wednesday night show with Matt Edmondson... Um, it was sort of a cult comedy show, and we'd. It was sort of we talk. I talk more on that, but I was always aware that if ever I talked on air, people would always think maybe, oh, he's only trying to further his own career outside of this. So I was always very aware of that and kept the two worlds as separate and distant as possible. And I think I wouldn't have stayed at Radio well on One as long as I did if I hadn't have tried to keep those two worlds very separate. Did it? Did it make
1: a kind of big? Um, crossroads when you had to make a decision or was it kind of a slow it was a slow natural...
0: natural decision like off the back of impossible it was very clear that's like I thought about this a few times and had never quite taken the leap but it was very clear that if I don't leave now I will never leave and I will always regret having never pursued this properly and I had enough of a safety net in that I'd just been offered the illusionists so it's like all right I know what, and then Impossible was gonna go on a tour. So I was like, I couldn't do those while still being at Radio One. So I was like, all right, that's good. So I did that, I was like, that was the impetus to go. I did The Illusionist, I did an Impossible tour. I did, I think we did Impossible in the West End that summer. And then I had no work for maybe six to nine months. Wow. Where I spent the whole time going, Oh my god, did I make the right decision. I taught myself to cook, so I didn't get uh, the breasts doing nothing. I started taking freelance shifts back at Radio 1 and Radio 2, because I was like, oh, maybe I need to go back here. But the whole time I was still pursuing stuff, and then luckily a lot of the kind of things I'd been working on, stuff started to come in and the illusionists offered me some more work, and then that led to more work and more work. Um, but there was a point where I was like, oh, I've made the wrong decision.
1: But you haven't left the BBC completely behind because you recently did your own yes. series, Mind Boggling Magic, yeah. on CBBC. CBBC channel.
0: iPlayer channel. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
1: So obviously, the, so was that on the CBBC channel? Or no. Always so iPlayer? it was
0: always it was a iPlayer commission. Yeah. Um. So it was a thing where they were like, okay, we they'd come to see Impossible. They're like, can you do my reading for kids? We came up with some stuff. It went back and forth for ages. It looked like it was wasn't going to happen, and then suddenly they were like, great, we want. 18 for iPlayer you have three weeks and no money and uh in three weeks in two weeks we developed everything up and in one week we shot it all and that's what it became and it's not I'm not massively proud of a lot of that stuff I think it's all right uh it's good considering all the stuff around it but it was amazing to get to do something and it's basically each episode is just a little trick and it was great to find ways to do mind reading for kids which was fun um yeah, it's sort of a thing I'm working on now and what's next, what might that show become in the future? Here's the thing, all of the things like that, that was two years before it happened and then suddenly it happened. And I could have given up at any point, but I just kept pestering and working on it. And as a kid, I used to pester people and I feel bad as an adult pestering people. But, and I, but I found a different way to pester people. But if you don't, if you just give up on something, it it will go away. But if you just keep working on it, it might happen. And I have a million examples of things that haven't happened, but out of all of them, I've got something out of the process of trying to make it happen. And no one's going to fight for you more than you. So you've just got to always keep working at stuff.
1: I watched all of the episodes. Oh last my God. Night because I hadn't I've seen them. I've always wondered before. who the viewer was. Yeah. We found him. I hadn't seen them, and I, I kind of didn't know whether they were going to go on. Yeah. I'd heard that it was being made, and then that was it. Yes. And I was like, oh, I better see if this has come out. So I watched them yeah. all on iPlayer last night and I would highly recommend you know, oh, five thanks. minutes each aren't yeah they? they're
0: really short they're just little tricks um but the one has got one
1: of my favorite opening lines to okay trick, just because it's so silly um when you start by saying who had dinner last night oh yeah and then it's the fart. yes yeah, so that's fart it they
0: that's the version of they wouldn't let me do the bottle of water drinking the bottle of spit editorial policy we're not happy because it's imitative behavior so it's like all right we'll get kids to fart in jars and then I'll smell their farts and tell them what they have for dinner um, and that, like, yeah, that sort of sums up my mind-reading approach. It's like, what's funny, what's stupid, what's silly? Right, let's do that.
1: But it, it is totally, it's I would say, a, a different presentation of magic, as you said, for children yeah. in total, because no one's kind of
0: done. Because a lot of the stuff that you do in that is... Yeah. It's sort of reworkings of classics. Yeah. And a lot of the reason is because we had two weeks to develop it. There was, so there were certain ideas from early on, like Fart Jars was quite an early idea, I was like, great, that's a winner. And then and then you're like, okay, what do we need? All right, let's do a version of a uh, book test. Let's do a version of Colour Match. But then it's just trying to find a version which is unique and feels different because of how it's performed and presented. And some of them probably succeeded, some of them probably failed.
1: Did you kind of have, like, uh, almost a focus group sounding board of children yeah. you could work things oh, off, or did you just get really. juvenile in your yeah, mind? Yeah, I got a
0: juvenile in mind. We had some good research, and then I had, um, like people who I trust implicitly with ideas and feel like they can fix stuff. So like my go-to's are like Andy or Preston Nyman, Noel Quarter, Alan Hudson, Neil Austin, Kennedy. Like they are, Peter Clifford as well. They're like, uh, and Mark Kalin and Dave Williamson now. Um, are like people I'll be like, is this any good? is this and like some of those people I paid to come in and we'd spend they just brainstorming ideas and like his trait just coming up with stuff and then fixing it and working out methods and stuff I can work on my own but I work so much better with other people to bounce things off and to make me do the work you're heading off
1: to you're working on the Harry Potter yes yes so the Cursed Child Cursed Child um, Harry Potter
0: and the Cursed Child part one and two yeah that Tell
1: us, tell us all, kind of what your role is. So it's what a, that's been like.
0: like it's again, it's a thing where I'm like, I can't believe how lucky I am. I saw that play when it opened, and it was on at the same time as Impossible. And I remember sending an email to Jamie, who created the magic, saying, "I'm embarrassed to be in a magic show in the West End, charging the same prices when this is the best magic show the West End has ever seen." And Jamie and Chris Fisher, was Chris Fisher was his associate, and I got to know Chris, and we did a thing together on a production of Barnum, uh, where we consulted together. And then they were looking for someone to come and work on Potter and help out with a cast change. And Chris very kindly thought of me. And I remember I was in South Africa and did like an interview on Skype with him and Jamie. I was doing the Illusionist out there and then came back and worked on the cast change. So I'm the part of the small magic team on that show. So my role is the magic and illusions assistant. So when I'm here, I've done the cast changes. So we teach the new casts how to do everything. Um, and then uh, when I'm here again, I will go and do what I'm doing now, which is I'll go and watch the show, I'll do notes. And then I'll go in and speak to the actors and just make sure everything as the quality control is there. Um, and it's amazing because the tricks in that show are. It's to be part of that and just come in and work on someone else's amazing material and make it as good as it can be is so much fun. It's
1: one of those um, productions yeah. on at the minute that's got so much mystique behind because people are trying to, you know, um, you know, trying to get tickets yes. still. I mean, yeah, it's, it's been still, going for so yeah. long and
0: people still. You know, they just released a new batch this week till August of next year. And they're saying like, they just almost instantly sell out. It's amazing. Um, give us a flavour of, of what the production's like for those that haven't seen so, it. So, this is me talking as not someone who works on it. This is me talking as the person who saw that show before I got a job on it. And I love theatre. And I genuinely believe it is one of the greatest examples of theatre and a play ever created because it feels so much more, but it's so simple at its core. And it is, there's a great statistic when it opened that 50% of people watching that show, it was the first time they ever went to the theatre. Wow. And there is no way they wouldn't see that and want to go and see something else because it captures everything that's brilliant about theatre, about it's clearly been made through a collaborative process. It's people working together to put something on and people sat there and deciding, we will watch what you've put on and being in the moment and feeling those emotions and those shocks and those oars and seeing what. Stagecraft can do, and where the real magic is, which is in mixing all that stuff together and creating moments of magic, both through tricks and through creating a world where you are lost in that world. And I'm never happier than when I'm sat in a chair at a theatre watching something or on stage games perform it because I think there is something truly, truly magical about experiencing something that we know it's on at the same time every night and we know they say the same words, but this version of it is only happening now and just for us and we're all feeling the same thing and connected. That is where theatre is at its greatest and I think Potter achieves that.
1: I think one of the coolest things about it is, you know, because so few people have seen it, it's Mm. still kind of, so much secretive. Yes, um, yeah, hashtag keep the secrets. That's
0: the hashtag. Yeah, that is the hashtag.
1: And I want to keep as much mystery about it as possible, but just give us an idea of, the kind of magic that that Um, people experience in
0: it. So I think the thing about it, and again, this is me answering as someone who saw the show rather than someone who works on the show, is it felt like, the thing is, it's never tricks. That's exact. It's because of that world you are watching magic. So it never feels like, ta-da, here's a trick. And there's stuff which just flies by. And you forget that that was an incredible magic trick because it seems so real. There's stuff people, magicians will recognise and you'll be like, oh, that's clever that they've used that for that. And there'll be stuff you'll, you won't you will even realise it's a trick. And then there'll be stuff you'll be like, oh my God, that's amazing how they did that. Um, but I think the the heart of that show is that it's theatre and it's simple theatre. So where you could have had millions spent on massive special effects and things, actually a lot of the stuff comes down to Tried and tested Victorian magic techniques. And that's me watching it. I felt that when I watched it. It's like, it's amazing just to see this stuff working so brilliantly. I love getting to watch them do it. Final
1: question for yeah. you then now. Um, and it's a question from my co host. Yeah. Who isn't, isn't here. He liked it so much he didn't come. Yeah. Ed used to be a chef. Yeah. And he wants to know all about uh, yeah. your your partnership, so to speak, um with Heston Blumenthal. What kind of stuff do you do with that? Are you still kind yeah, of involved? I am involved with him still. consulting with yeah, that? Yeah,
0: we do little bits uh now and again. I was asked to do a Channel Four show, a Heston show. Someone had seen my show in Edinburgh and was like, Would you like to come and do a bit on this? And I remember my agent saying, uh, there's no fee, so you shouldn't do it. And I was like, all right, can you see if you can get me dinner at the duck? No. No dinner at the fat duck. Can you get me a reservation? No. Can you get me a car there? No. All right, I'll do it. He was like, you shouldn't. He was a new agent at the time. I was like, no, I'll do it because I've always liked Heston's shows, and who knows what will happen. But I, I'd like to meet him, and I think it'd be fun. So off the back of that, got to know Heston. liked what I was doing, brought me into the fat duck for a meeting. They are in the process of redeveloping whole menu and everything there and then ended up being part of the creative team for a year on that redevelopment and there's a documentary which they filmed and was aired on it um, and we basically created i worked on the theatricality of the menu which became a thing called the story finding anchor points for like basically working on things like creating a bit of theater for making it work as a cohesive whole with that amazing team there and then creating a couple of magic tricks that go with dishes so there's a couple of courses where there's a trick as part of it And we try to do a bespoke thing for nearly every guest. So lots of kind of mind reading techniques are used to create those moments where it feels like, we never present it as mind reading, but it's like, how the hell did you, it just feels really personal. And it's like amazing that we know that, plus, and just some fun tricks, like a floating pillow, which on top of it has an edible pillow, stuff like that. Paper, which releases flavor that you put into a cocktail shaker with water. And you think about you select the one you want and no one sees it and you shake it up and you spray out foam and then they poach that foam in liquid nitrogen and it's an edible flavour that you can eat, which is the flavour you're thinking of. Stuff like that. It's amazing. It's like literally Woolly Wonka world. I love it. And I love food, so like to mix those two worlds is great.
1: What was the creation process like? I can imagine only knowing Um, from the persona we see of Hester on TV, that he he would be this sort of mad scientist that would be like,
0: can this happen? And then
1: you make it happen. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of that. And I obviously am not involved in anything to do with the food. But, you know, there's a point where, like with the liquid nitrogen poached aperitifs, there's a thing we played around with where I realised after we'd had it in for a while, the problem was the trick was only ever really for one person because that person would eat it and go, yeah, that's the flavour I was thinking of. Uh, And so we then worked at, can we make them different colours? foams so everyone can see when it comes out that it's the same color so that was like and then so we start with that idea and then they work out can we do this without changing the dish but yeah heston is a machine it's incredible his creativity and he drives everything there and he's supported by a phenomenal team and it's sort of akin to when you look at the greatest magicians or performers in the world you go yeah there's a great team behind them helping facilitate their ideas um yeah and heston would do that and be like can we do this but also really open to he'd talk about things and you'd be like oh we could do that or what about this and he'd get really excited about ideas and then you'd go ahead and try and make them happen there was like a crazy moment where i flew to melbourne for three days i literally spent longer flying than there to try out the tricks when we first invented them because the restaurant was there when it was closed here um it was amazing because i was like i cannot believe i'm getting to do this. there's a lot of i think i've said that a lot i cannot believe this yeah i literally went and did a lunch service Ate dinner, flew home the next day.
1: Well, you've made me hungry now, so that's, that's good. probably that's a good, good time to end. <laughs> uh, Chris, thank you very
0: much. Hey, I hope I wasn't boring.
1: That was a one you chose. Yes. Because uh, what I'm... Re- and you spoke about the bottle for about 20 minutes of that interview. Yeah. And I, I mean, I... Well, now I know, because he didn't mention it. I was convinced he switched the bottle of water. The bottle of water. Yeah. That was one of your questions. Do you switch the bottle of water? Well, it wasn't really a a question. It was just, it was something that we spoke about beforehand. And I thought, he must switch that bottle of water. Or he could have horrible diseases. Yeah. And I can't believe he's been doing that show for so long. That piece, anyway, that routine. And drinking other people's spit. And he hasn't got some kind of horrible disease. Well, here it's some news for UK. After the interview, yeah. once we turn the podcast machine off and being kicked out of the Nell on Dreary Lane, me and Chris had a bit of tea together, okay. and he told me he switches the bottle of water. Oh. Yeah. But sometimes he forgets to do it, (laughs) so sometimes he still gets a bit of phlegm. But most of the time he switches a bottle of water. And that's why he's still alive. And that's why he's still alive. Yeah, because the amazing Jonathan used to do a similar thing. Look at the state of him. Well, he's still alive. But you know what? Hey, just here's a nice little ending. We talked about our show in November at the beginning. Ah, but BFI they're playing the Amazing Jonathan documentary in November. Oh, great! And if you come to our show in November you'll get to see an actual Amazing Jonathan prop yeah because we've got that prop don't tell them what it is mm. some people may be able to guess but we have an, a prop in our show that was made by the Amazing Jonathan's own hands, and he gave it to us He, when he decided he wasn't going to do much performing he was like I want people to have this so he gave it to us and all we had to do was give him $200. Yeah. What a lovely guy. Uh, so come and see the show, 16th of November, see the amazing Jonathan prop, and then we'll all go to the BFI and watch the amazing Jonathan documentary together. Shall we? Yeah. Shall we do it after the show? Will it be on that late? It's not on that day. OK. But like a week later. All right. All right. See you later. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Kate and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.